John 3. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. Exodus 19. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Teresa. Let me pray. We're going to look at Psalm 50. That reading was background or rounding out what we're going to see in Psalm 50. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of it week in, week out, day in, day out, as it shapes our heart, mind, soul, affections for you. In spite of our ability to screen out things that are challenging or confusing, would you, uh, would you help us not to do that and receive what you have for us now? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Welcome. Good to be back after a few weeks of intentional vacation. And then, as Joe alluded to in his prayer, COVID-imposed vacation. I thought after like three years, I was totally immune. I didn't got it. I thought it was, didn't think it was made up, but it was for other people. And turns out the only person I know in my life who's immune to this is my wife, who apparently cannot get this. Uh, uh, so... Uh, and uh, I was able to listen to some of the sermons that Taylor preached as he's working through Psalm 46, 47, 48, 49. These great psalms of the grandeur of God, imagination, building, joyful, uh, holiness of God. It's beautiful. And I get to come to you and bring you a psalm of warning, correction, and judgment. So I should have perhaps thought a little bit differently about when I was going to enter back into this thing. And we kind of, uh, you know, when we see psalms like this or genre of scripture like this or scriptures like this, we have this tendency to pull back from it. But what, again, what we see in it and what we're going to see today is that if we, can, if we can resist that temptation, we find still good things in it. And uh, I realize that, I, I, you know, because when I'm gone, what the illustrations you get are like Avengers and Marvel Universe. Taylor, I've got none of those. I don't even, I fall asleep at every single Marvel movie. I'm sorry. I don't even know the difference between Marvel and DC, nor do I care. I'm sure it's important, but it's not to me. So, uh, but what's important to me is professional sports. So here we go. Um, again, Taylor doesn't go give those illustrations, and you just have to bear with another sports illustration. I'm sorry, but you don't have to be a fan for this one. In the last 12 years, probably, NBA basketball has been completely revolutionized National Basketball Association, professional basketball, has been completely revolutionized by one player 
who is widely considered the very best shooter in the history of the NBA. His name is Stephen Curry. Steph Curry. Anybody heard of Steph Curry? Okay, so half of you are with me. But the other half, all you have to know is he is just the greatest shooter who's ever played the game, probably. And now routinely will attempt and make shots that only one generation ago nobody would even ever consider taking. It's just normal for Steph to make these. It's it's nightly highlight for Steph Curry to make a wild shot that the, in the last generation players nobody ever would have taken. However, it took his coach, his current coach named Steve Kerr, Coach Kerr, a while to get used to Steph's shot selection. When Coach Kerr played in the NBA, mostly for the Chicago Bulls, he was known as one of the best shooters in the NBA as well. However, he was a safe shooter. He never took a wild shot. He only took open shots. Now, he made a lot of them, but he was very safe. And so in the first couple years of his coaching uh, the Golden State Warriors, the team for which Steph Curry plays, routinely you would see Coach Kerr do this. Oh, oh, great. Like, Steph would take this wild off-balance shot from 33 feet away, and Kerr would be like, oh, beautiful, right? So, objection, resistance, celebration, right? That's, and you can just look it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube and say, Steph Curry, amazing shots. You'll see you'll, hours and hours of enjoyment, even if you don't enjoy basketball. It took Coach Kerr a while to get discipled in the ways of Steph Curry. And now if you watch him, what he normally does, what he often does, is resist the temptation to object to that wild, ridiculous shot and just wait for the celebration because he knows that often, more times than not, and especially when the game's on the line, it's going to come out okay. It's going to be good. He doesn't have to wince. He doesn't have to object. He doesn't have to cringe. He just has to wait and see if it comes out okay, and it often does. So the Scripture like we're looking at today is not that different. The Scripture like this, Scriptures of warning passages, of correction, of judgment, they are hard words from God, And we may be tempted to wince at them, but if we can hold on, we see that embedded in them is something actually very good for his people, very instructive for his people. So these are words of warning and correction. You may say words of judgment for his people in the Old Testament, our family in the Old Testament. They are still words of warning and correction for us in a different way. But what's in here is actually good news. That's still good news. Namely, and I put it in your insert at the top, here's the good news. The Lord will not be controlled and His words cannot fail. The Lord will not be controlled and His words cannot fail. And that was good news for them. And I want to make the argument that it is very, very good news for us, His covenant people now in the New Testament. Still good news, even if it exposes our sin and weakness along the way. So let's let it do that, and then let's look at the goodness here. Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph. So this was not written by David. This was written by another psalmist who wrote some of the psalms named Asaph. Verse 1. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. This is just elevated language. So the opening scene, God here is the judge of the nations, and the nations are summoned. 
You know, a summons is like a demand to appear. It's a notice that you must appear, usually for a court proceeding. So the nations are summoned. And these descriptive names of God are just piled up. Mighty One, God, the Lord, Elohim, Yahweh. Right? All these names piled up. His glory is like radiating out of Zion. It's just meant to be this overwhelming image. And what it seems like is God is going to judge the nations. That's the unbelieving nations, right? That's the earth. All the nations of the earth. God summoned them because he's going to judge them. And uh, the people, the people of God say in verse 3, Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Right? Before him is a devouring fire, around him is a mighty tempest. So what the picture is for the first three verses is the people of God saying, Okay, now the nations are going to get it. We've been waiting for this. They've treated us poorly. They're going to get it. Let's sit back and watch what happens. Uh, I'm a sucker for crime dramas. I have seen every episode of Law and Order. The new one's not so great. It's super politically correct. But I can see through that because I love Law and Order. I love Blue Bloods. I know it's cheesy. I don't care. I love it. I love Chicago PD. I know it's gritty. I don't care. I love it. I'm not recommending any of those for young children, but for all of them for adults. I love crime dramas. I don't know why. I just think they like they clear, good, bad, you know, get the bad guy, all that kind of stuff. But one of the common sort of uh, narrative moves in a crime drama is they're so predictable, but I don't care. I just love them. There's somebody who is uh, claiming to be a witness to the crime, but the detectives think, actually, you are the perpetrator of the crime. So we will, we will bring you in and hear what you have to say as a witness to the crime. And, oh, there's no room in the squad room. Let's go into the box and have this conversation, right? Tell us what you think of, as a witness to the crime. And then they get in there and the tables turn and the detectives say, you're the person. You're the one who's guilty. I know you came in this whole setup and thought it was the, you thought we thought it was the other person, but we know it's you. That's what happens in this passage. Verse 3, the people are like, our God comes. He doesn't keep silence. He's going to judge the nations. But then there's this hard turn. Verse 4, he calls. God calls to the heaven above and to the earth that he may judge his people. And you know, at this point, they're like, wait, what, us? He says, gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. He says, I'm going to judge my covenant community. My faithful ones, perhaps to see if they are faithful. Now what you need to know about judgment in the Bible with God's own people, it has far less to do with punishment and much more to do with purification and removal of death. Judgment is a form of restoration of God's own people in the, in the Bible. So he said, there, there are those in covenant with me. They have the external form, but I'm going to reveal if they have the internal reality. Those are people in the Old Testament, people of Israel. Today, it would be those in the church of Jesus. Right there, so however many here gathered, and then it will be in the next service too that have an outward form of being in covenant with God. That's, um, that's wonderful. We affirm that. It's awesome. But an outward form and an internal reality are not necessarily the same thing. And God is saying, look, that's, it's, it's the case now. It was the case then. So let my words act on my people. And then this, the word selah, we've mentioned this before, it means pause. 
So there's this abrupt turn, and then he says, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to bring judgment on my people, and then it's just pause. And he originally, I don't know how long the pause was. Did they stop, worship, and go home for a day or two or a week? I don't know. Like, think about it. What is it for God to, you know, does he have a reason to do this? In Scripture, I mean, I don't know if you've noticed this, God issues judgment on the nations, unbelieving nations, very rarely. Did you know that? In the Old Testament, it's very rare. And it has mostly to do with how they treat his people. One time I can think of, maybe, in Amos, it's about something else. But all of the other times, it's rare, and it has to do with how they treat his people. And in the New Testament, apart from the book of Revelation, it's never mentioned. Unbelieving rulers. What, here's what he says to do about unbelieving and terrible rulers in the New Testament. Pray for them. That's it. So you could say we, as modern Christians, are much more concerned about judging the nations than Scripture is. Now, why is that? Well, part of it is proximity, right? You think about it. Do you correct, if you're a parent, do you correct your own children more than the kids down the street? Yes, you do. Why is that? Because you see them more and you love them more. The kids down the street aren't your responsibility. And you're not going to take responsibility, you're, well, you occasionally, but you're going to spend a lot more time bringing correction to your own children than the neighbor's kids. And if it's too much time to the neighbor's kids, you're not going to let them come over anyway, right? So you're going to, you love them or God loves his people more, so he brings correction to them. But also the nations of the world, he's already spoken about this. And Teresa read this right before the sermon. If you look on the back of your insert, this is a, a New Living Translation of John 3, verse 18. This is after, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. It said, verse 18, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light. So why doesn't God spend a lot of time talking about judgment on the nations? Because he's already said it. Uh, here's the judgment. You're in darkness. That's the judgment. What is the, what is the word God has for all the unbelieving nations? Repent. Then he has words after repent. But first, repent. That's his, that's his word to the unbelieving nations. What does he say to unbelieving rulers? He says it in Psalm 2. Kiss the son lest he be angry at you and you perish in your way. What does he say to, uh, what does he say to Vladimir Putin? Kiss the son. Submit to Jesus. What does he say to Joe Biden? Kiss the son. Submit to Jesus. What does he say to all the rulers, governors, senators, everybody in the world? Kiss the son lest he be angry with you and you perish in your way. He's spoken about that. He's spoken once. He doesn't have to keep saying that. But there's another reason. The people of God, you, me, and the Old Testament, New Testament, have a mission of being a life-giving presence in this world by embodying a way of life that is different than this world. We have a call to be a life-giving presence that embodies a way of life that anticipates the world to come, that is united to a resurrected Jesus and in us and through us flow that future power back into the present. They're called to be a light to the nations in Exodus 19, that Teresa read, a contrast society. And now in 1 Peter 2, if you look at that again, so 
Exodus 19, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Picks that language of holy nation in Exodus 19, puts it down on you and me in 1 Peter 2, talking to the church. You, y'all, collective, right, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Friends, we have a mission in this world of embodying Jesus and the world to come. That means an an appropriate difference from the world in which we live. If there's not that appropriate difference, and you know, if you know me, I'm not a separationist, you know that, but there's not an appropriate difference, there's no way we can be that contrast society. And it's very easy for the people of God to slip into this reality where we don't have that appropriate distance and difference. And that's what he's about to unfold for his people. But to you and me, he says, we, just like the people of Israel in the Old Testament, the people of God then, the people of God now, are a people who are for his possession in this world, self-consciously belonging to him and bought and rescued by him. We, the church, is a holy nation. Now, this may go without saying, but I want to say it over and over and over again. The United States of America is a fine country. It is not a holy nation. It is not the holy nation. It is not. It has not been. It will not be because it cannot be. No nation of this world can be the holy nation because only the church bought by Jesus is the holy nation. Now, we can talk and people can argue about, is America a Christian nation because it has Christian values? Not according to the Scripture. You know why? Because all Christian values begin with this. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you and you perish in your way. Christian, a Christian value is something only related in Jesus. Now, I'm all for laws that reflect God's law. Well, that's great. That's helpful. That's a good way to love your neighbor. But let's not confuse the fact that the country, the nation we live in, is not a holy nation. It's not, cannot, never will be, never has been, can't be. Uh, this means that the people of God in a world that draws up national lines says, declares, we are an international people. We're an international people first. First. That may make you uncomfortable. If you say, no, I'm an American first, I want to defend your right to understand your life that way, I just want to say you're missing the Scripture. That's not, cannot be what the Scripture says. Cannot be. Some of you met Salim last week when he was here. I had a chance to meet him before I went down with COVID. I hope I didn't give him COVID. Um, Salim is one of our missionaries to the Muslim world. Salim does not look like me. He does not share, share my natu- national heritage, either as an American or my lineage from Britain and Germany. He doesn't have my skin color, eye color, uh, educational background. 
But you know what Salim is to me and to most of you? He is my brother. He is my brother. He is by far closer to me than the guy who lives down the street that doesn't know Jesus, who happens also to be an American, a Caucasian, from German, English descent, but fairly well educated. There's similarities there, but there's identity with Salim as my brother. He's my international brother. The people of God are meant to be an international people in a world that says you have to draw things up on national lines. We say, no, not, that's ridiculous. In a world that says you have to have primary allegiance to this party or this party or maybe a third party, we say, no. No, we have a king. We're rebels. We're dissidents, revolutionaries to that kind of you. Our identity is firm, formed first and foremost not by race, not by class, not by education level. It's formed first and foremost by this reality. In Jesus, we have received mercy and are part of a new family. We are bought by him, possessed by him. We get that straight? We are a life-giving presence in this world. The world may love us, the world may hate us. Who knows? Not up to me. But it's so easy not to get that straight. It's so easy for the distinction to collapse. And that's, there are a couple ways here that the people of God then and now are tempted to fail in fulfilling that mission. First, they were acting as if God could be managed, controlled, or manipulated. Verse 7, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am your God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. So he's saying basically the external form is fine. And yet I'm not receiving this. Verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Remember, this is the old sacrificial system. Why? Verse 10, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the, ble- the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Now, what is he talking about? The surrounding nations to Israel had a sacrificial system too. But they're, whatever, different They were all different, but they all had this similarity. That somehow the gods were hungry, and somehow in this religious way, they were actually eating the sacrifices they were were making to them. That the gods were just like humans, but a little bit bigger. And they were needy gods who could be persuaded because of their appetites. And if they wanted God to do what they, if they could, They could convince the gods to do what they wanted the gods to do by giving better sacrifices or doing this or doing this or prevent the gods from doing something bad by doing this. And if something was going bad, it must be because the sacrifices weren't good enough. These are gods with appetites that we can control and manipulate and manage and shaped and bribed and all that kind of stuff. And so it's natural for that, that world around thinking to seep into Israel. And God says, basically, what, you think I'm eating this? Like, what? What is wrong? I'm not eating this. You think I fit neatly into the worldview of those who don't worship me? I don't fit that neatly into those worldviews. I'm not hungry, right? 
I'm self-sufficient. He doesn't say this. He's self-sufficient. He is of himself. Aseity. They don't say that in the Old Testament, but like it's the theological concept. He doesn't need that. And if he was, he says, I would just take it. It's mine. I don't need your sacrifice. The sacrificial system is for you, not for me. I own everything. Every beast of the forest is mine. I own a cattle on a thousand hills. That's one of those, that's one of those passages that get picked up and put on your refrigerator. And we're like, oh, it's a cattle on a thousand hills. Like sometimes you encourage people like, I don't know if I have the resources. To be. Oh, you know, God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He can give that to you. Okay. It's true, but I just want you to see, originally when that phrase is used, it's a chastisement on God's people. So it's kind of like a couple weeks ago, Taylor's like, be still and know that I am God. That kind of, everybody's like, well, I've got to take that off my fridge now. It doesn't mean what I thought. This is another one. Read the context. What can we, do? What can we tell you? Um, I don't know where I am here. Uh, some in Israel believed they could manipulate God to do what they wanted him to do or not do what they didn't want him to do by the way they worshipped or lived. Some in Israel believed that they could manipulate, manage, shape, coddle, cajole, bribe, convince, move God to do what they wanted him to do or not do what they didn't want him to do by the way they worshipped or lived. I don't know how far different that is from us sometimes. As I was reflecting on this this week, I think it became clear to me, so we're more subtle. We would never say it that way. But it's, I think I've noticed in my own self that sometimes I avoid God in my prayer, in my thinking. Even when I do pray, it's like formal. Sometimes I avoid God in a silly attempt to keep life working out the way it is. Because you know what? Right now I have a pretty good life. I get to be a pastor of a pretty good church, a great family, relative health. I, I like the way things are going. And I kind of avoid God because it's silly. Because sometimes, somehow I think if I really engage with him, it'll get messed up. I don't know why that is. It's my own particular, like, brokenness. Maybe you share in that. I don't know. Sometimes I believe if I truly lament things, they'll get worse. If I, I pour out my complaint to the Lord, I don't know why I think this. Like he'll say like, oh, you haven't seen nothing yet. You know why that is? Because I'm stupid. I'm sinful. You know why you do it? Mm. <laughs> Probably the same reason. <laughs> it's silly. Sometimes because I have a sense of first world privilege, I am thankful that I live in 2022 in America, in the West. I am thankful for that. Sometimes my concern is if I ask God for more, he'll actually take away what I have. I don't know if you share in that. Like, it's like, oh, you're complaining. Let me do this. Um, maybe that's not you. Maybe you're inclined the other way, right? Working harder, trying to do everything perfect so things will go well or stay well. And we know we're doing this because when things go sideways, we say, we say things like this. What did I do? I'm doing all the right things. I'm believing all the right things. How dare God fill in the blank? <laughs> how, why do we say how or think privately, how dare the Lord do this and fill in the blank? Because we think we're actually managing his behavior by ours. And we think we know how our future should go when we don't. 
I don't think it's that, f- that what they're doing is that far from the stuff I do routinely. We hear it sometimes, the little comments like, don't tell God your plans, or, right, he'll derail them. Stupid. That's stupid. Like, he doesn't know what you think already. And, and he's, like, just waiting for you to say. Then he's like, now I'll derail their plans. Um, so the problem is we think we know how our life should work out, and we're trying to impose this vision of life on the Lord. And we have a hunch that he's not good. So we don't entrust him, ourselves to him. Who here has never once in their life been skydiving besides me? Okay. Who here at least once in their life has been skydiving? Okay, a few courageous folk. The fourth of my five kids just went skydiving. Why? I have no idea. It's just like apparently some rite of passage for kids in our family when they are like in their late teens. Okay. Um, It's one thing to know what skydiving is. Uh, So so the the first group that raised their hand, who's never been skydiving, you know what skydiving is. Because when I said, who's never been skydiving, you didn't say, I don't know what you're talking about. You know what it is. You said, I've never done that. Right? But you know what skydiving is. You know that skydiving is actually entrusting yourself and your life and your future and everything in your world to a piece of fabric. Right? You know that. You know that's what skydiving is. Uh, some, of you, some of you, that second group, that, that smaller group, know what skydiving is in an entirely different way because you have entrusted yourself and your future, and all of your life, and world, and all the things that may come to a piece of fabric. You've entrusted yourself to a parachute. There are two types of knowing what skydiving is. We can know God by believing that we should entrust ourselves to Him. Right? I can know about skydiving but by believing that it is entrusting myself to a parachute. I can know about God by believing that we should entrust ourselves to him. The Lord is a God who can only be known, only be fully known by actually doing it. By actually entrusting ourselves to him. Some of you, I'm not saying you're not a Christian following Jesus, but there's always been a little check in your heart. Maybe you've subtly avoided him because you think if I fully engage, will something be messed up? Like he needs your permission (laughs) to mess things up in our life. Uh, Some of us have been trying just a little bit harder, a little bit harder, trying to do it right, trying to get the right thought, the right idea, the right worship, the right generosity, the right hospitality, so that things will go. Good news, guys. We can entrust ourselves to one who knows how our future will go and has our best interest in mind. How do we know that? We are going to the communion table in a few minutes. This is the picture that the Father has our best interest in mind. He's already given us the best thing in Jesus. This is a picture that Jesus, our Savior, has given everything for us. Here's a, it doesn't, it's not going to stop us from doing this, but we need to know that we cannot reasonably and rationally come to the communion table and fear the future. 
Now, it's not going to, the lack of reason is not going to stop us from doing it, right? But we can't rationally go to the communion table and not, and, and, and be concerned that God's not got our best interest in mind, that he doesn't care for us. It's the picture of his care. It's the picture that he knows how our future should go, and he's completely in. He's completely committed to moving us in that direction, to doing us good all the days of our life, even if in the moment it looks suspect. Okay. What's God's response to all this? What's the way back? Offer, verse 14, offer to God sacrifices of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High, or offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and in so doing, Perform your vows. Fulfill your promises as my people. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. It's very simple. It's so great. He's like, open your hands in thanksgiving and call on me in trouble. That's it. Theologian Alec Matir says, true devotion from the heart without negotiation of terms. What great thing do we have to do if we see we've been trying to manage God all these years? Oh, repent. Heart of thanksgiving, open hands, move on with him. Confess it, be thankful, he's got mercy for us, and we move into the future with him. God will not be controlled, managed, manipulated, coerced, bribed, handled, led, regulated, etc., and that's good news because we don't actually know how our future should go. And he's completely committed to us to do us good. That's the first group of people. Second group of people, so that was, if you, that's more the legalists. Maybe the second group of people you could call maybe more the liberals. Um, and in here is one of the most helpful lines in Scripture. We're going to go through this a little faster. Verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, what right do you have to recite my statues or take my covenant on your lips? He's still talking to the covenant people. But those who take his words lightly, he calls wicked. For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you or behind your back. I love that picture. It's like, so, hmm, I see those words. Nope. Throw them back there. They're too hard. Get behind me. Too restrictive. Nope. Too out of step with the culture. Nope. Get those words behind me. I can't see them. They're thwarting my way of life. I'll get those words behind me. Verse 18, if you see a thief, you're pleased with him. I don't know, maybe they congratulate his shrewdness. And you keep company with adulterers. That keeping company there is Hebrew, like for affirming friendship. Saying, ah, sexual sin, no big deal. Happens. Verse 19. You give your mouth free reign for evil. Maybe we say, look, I'm just being authentic. Just telling you the truth here. It's the way it is. I like to say things as they are. And your tongue frames deceit, using words to shape an image of yourself, a reality that is Adjusted, let's say. These things are prohibited by God. They are not unto life. They are not unto being the type of people that live as a contrast society as a foretaste of the coming reality. Not, not unto being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So why do they feel such a freedom to do this? And here's the money line in this whole psalm for me. I love this. This, this to me, solves a lot of problems in my world. Verse 21, these things you have done and I have been silent. So God's like, I, did, I didn't correct you immediately, but here it is. You thought I was just like you. Or literally it is, you thought the I am was just like you. 
You thought I was just like you. You thought if I could twist, you could twist my words and make them palatable to you, and maybe to your friends they wouldn't be palatable to me. Wrong. I'm not just like you. You thought if you put them behind your back and you couldn't see them anymore, I couldn't see them anymore. Wrong. I'm not just like you. You are made in my image. You reflect me in some way. But that doesn't mean I'm just like you and you're just like me. So this means, friends, that we cannot know God just by thinking about him. Do you know that? Just by thinking human thoughts, hmm, if I were God, what would God be like? That, you know what that is? Heresy. We need revelation. God's not just like us, so he has to reveal himself to us. And he does that in the scripture. And we might say, well, if I were God, I wouldn't do it in a book. And guess what? He's not just like you. If I were God and I revealed myself in a book, it would be, you know, letters and they would be age and we couldn't know what they're about. And God says, I'm not just like you. I give you a living word, not just like you. Sometimes when there's some, something in the sort of public morality sphere, you see people write and they say something like, you know, my Jesus would never, and you know what that is? That's preview to saying something stupid. My Jesus would never do this, say this, think this. Like, the question is like, what does the Jesus of his own self-revelation say? What is Jesus? Not your Jesus. I don't care about your Jesus. You shouldn't care about my Jesus. I care about Jesus. What does he say? The one who's not just like us. So think about this like with hard doctrines. I think this happens all the time. Like the Trinity. Like predestination. Like the sovereignty of God. I don't know how you can read the scripture and not see those things in there. They're there. You can talk to me afterwards if you disagree, but they're there. What the problem is, they're hard to understand. Like, how can God be completely sovereign over all things and we have real freedom? He says that, but I don't understand it, therefore it must not be true. Well, maybe you can understand it, therefore you must not be God. That's probably what's true. He's not like us. We're not like him. We need revelation. We need him to reveal himself to say, here's what I'm like. And good news, he has. Okay. If we never, in hard providences in our own life, we would say, if I were God, I would never let this into my life. Okay. The next time we think this, the next second thought would be, but then again, I'm not God. If we never have a God who can challenge us or contradict us or those around us or our culture, if we, can never make a, have a, if we never have a God who makes us scratch our heads or throw our arms up in frustration, if we never have a God who has words harder than us that cut us to the heart and shape us and correct us, if we never have that God, what we do have is a God who is just like us. What we do not have is God. And so... He's like, do you notice this inclination? You know who can do this? You know who can adjust God's words in this congregation, I think, better than anybody? I'm going to name a name. Roger Williams. Me. Maybe Taylor Bradbury. Maybe some of you. Like, what? Why? Because we're most familiar with it. And if we're inclined, we can let the subtle nuances of our desire get under it and adjust it. And so that's why the integrity of God's leaders are of utmost importance. This is serious stuff. God says, but I'm not bringing destruction. I'm giving you a loving gift of warning. Look at verse 22. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. 
He's not saying, I'm tearing you apart. He's saying, I'm giving you a warning. Because if, if I act, there's none to deliver you. What's the solution? Well, again, verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving and his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of our God. Open-handed allowance of our life to be shaped by his words. His words cannot fail. They're harder than us. They stand when we fall, and that is good news. Why is that? Because we hear words like this from God. This is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you for the remission of sins. It's not like some point in the future he's going to say, you know what? You can cast those words behind your back. He will never cast those words behind his back. They always stand for you in Christ. He's not just like us, but you know the story. The one who is not just like us became like us in every way. Now, he was more than that, but not less. Fully human, fully God. He took a low position to meet us in our inclination to manipulate him, to make a way back, to meet us in our inclination to put his words behind our back, to give us a way back. Friends, go to the communion table. In it, you have, you're going to taste and smell and touch and meditate on this reality that God doesn't just know the future. He's committed to bringing you good in that future because he's already bought you the best good in the past and gives us the best good now. If you're in Christ by faith, this table is open to you. We say taking communion and the New City community is saying, I receive and rest on Jesus alone, and I want his lordship in my life. If, this, if you realize you've been sort of negotiating your way through life or for the last few months or years or decades or maybe the whole time, make this a time of restoration and take that communion to yourself with this assurance that I don't have to negotiate anymore. My Father loves me. My Savior died for me. Let me pray, and I'll invite you to the table by approaching from the outside to the back taking a piece of bread and either red wine or white grape juice and then return to your seats and we'll take together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your commitment to us. We now celebrate that in multi-sensory fashion in your name. Amen. As you prepare, would you get, grab your elements and return to your seat?